Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. Welcome to our episode on Shmini Atzeret and Simcha Torah. Avi, I'm going to begin... Thank you. That was my... That was my... Uh, Noisemaker. Noisemaker for Simcha Torah. Hooray! Uh, Avi, I would like to start with... So, Shmini Atzeret. We have established Shmini Atzeret. It's a different Chag entirely. It is not part of Sukkot. Simchat Torah is not part of Sukkot. And here in the diaspora, Simchat Torah and Shmini Atzeret are two different days. Avi, I think these two days are very different. So maybe you can explain to us why in Eretz Yisrael, Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah are the same day when here in the diaspora they celebrate as two very different days. So the problem is that here in the diaspora, we have problems. We have so many problems that we couldn't really tell, going back to our calendar, when the first day was and when the second day was of a particular holiday. And so just like we don't know when it was the first day of Sukkot or the second day of Sukkot, which is why we keep two days of Yom Tov at the beginning of Sukkot, we don't know when the last day of Sukkot is. It might be on whatever Shemini Atzeret day it, it falls on, and it might be whatever day that Simchat Torah falls on. And so we have separated the two into two neatly compartmentalized holidays, even though they should really be one. And so on Shemini Atzeret, we focus in on the idea of it being the eighth day of the holiday, and we focus on rain and thanking God and asking God for the rain that we need. And on Simchat Torah, we talk about the end of the reading of the Sefer Torah and the beginning of the Sefer Torah again. Thank you. The challenge is that really these two holidays are separate when they should be together. And while that's an awful lot of holiday to try and fit into a 24-hour period, I think that we may enjoy ourselves more when we separate it, because it's a little bit of less is more, but I also wonder if we miss out on the fullness, and even to a certain extent, the ability to overwhelm ourselves with chag, with 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 holiday and with happiness um, in trying to fit all of this into a 24-hour period. Avi, I'm going to push back a little bit on this whole uh, 
two-day issue, and here's why. Not because I don't... And not because I don't understand the previous and uh, initial basis for we're not sure which day it is. But at the same time, we as a people, and shout out to the, uh, the senior Rabbi Green, uh, because I had a conversation earlier with him that here we, as an amazing people, we have been able to figure out and calculate not only what days the Chagim will happen on, but our calendar is designed so that there are days that never have Chag. We can never have a Friday Yom Kippur. We can never have a Sunday Yom Kippur. So we had the ability to calculate and create and master all of this as well as developing a combination between the lunar and solar such that Chag HaAviv is always in the spring. And yet, we can't tell whether or not this is the day or that is the day. So the question I really hear you asking, Akiva, is why do we have two days of Chag? Maybe we would need two days of Chag like they have even in Israel for Rosh Hashanah because this could be the first day of the new moon of the new month or this day could be the first new moon of this first month but certainly by the time we get to Sukkot and sure enough by the time we get to Pesach and Shavuot we should know which day is the first day and which day is the second day. Well actually Avi it's, it's more of a pushback to the original of Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah especially considering how much is shoved into that one day in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, I think it could be two days in Israel. It's, it's, enough, it's enough of uh, two important things that we can make it Yantiv twice, even in Israel, like for Rosh Hashanah, where we're not sure which day it is. So, so I'd push back on that because... <clears throat> There you would have an issue of Baal Tosif, which is the prohibition against adding to halachic days, right? According to the Torah, we have a prohibition from adding days on or adding things onto mitzvot. And so to say, well, we're just going to randomly add a day to Sukkot um, would be problematic. Um, and backing Shemini Yatzeret up would be problematic because... It's in the name. It is the eighth day. And so... Yes, but Avi, Simchat Torah is not in the Torah. That is correct. Simchat Torah is not in the Torah. And so you're suggesting we move Simchat Torah to the seventh day of Sukkot? Only in Israel. Well, we can bring that to the rabbinic authorities in Israel. I just don't see them going for it. But I do want to jump back to the question of why do we have two days if we are able to correctly calculate the interlinear calendar and really we should be able to know which day is Sukkot, which day is Shemini Atzeret, which day is first day of Pesach. Um, and some will argue that it is part of our punishment for living outside of the land of Israel, this idea that we need to have two days. It is part of the uh, 
difficulty and and others might argue that it is part of the way we make up for mitzvot that we can't do because we don't live in the land of Israel. There are certain mitzvot that can only be accomplished while living in the land of Israel, and so this provides us with other opportunities for doing mitzvot. Um, but I think it has a lot to do with being a traditional people and believing that the tradition is handed down and is handed down for a reason and sometimes we don't know that reason and sometimes that can be frustrating but while we can guess and suggest I'm not sure it's really in our realm to be able to say yes we definitely know and therefore we can do just one day versus this is what we've been doing for years and I'll be honest there are certain times where two days of Yom Tov, as opposed to one day of Yom Tov, is really advantageous. And I'm not just talking about splitting up Shemini Atzeret and Simchat Torah. I really like having two first days of Pesach and two Sidarim. And while for some people I know that can be quite painful, for me, I often find myself getting to the first Seder and feeling tired. We've spent all day preparing for Pesach and for Seder and running around and so sometimes I don't get every Dvar Torah I want to be able to say at that first Seder. And sometimes I don't get to do every custom I want to do at that first Seder. And the idea that I have a second chance, the second night, I can bring in other Divrei Torah. I can bring in other ideas. I can make sure I hit other customs that second night is a little bit liberating, which is good for Pesach. And so to that end... I think that sometimes having two days of Yom Tov can really be advantageous. Agreed. Akiva, part of the explanation for Shemini Atzeret being a separate holiday is that on Sukkot, when there were sacrifices, we would bring those sacrifices on behalf of the 70 other nations within the world. And the idea is that on Shemini Atzeret, it is a time for us as Jews alone to connect with God. And so while we have opened our doors and hosted others for the last seven days, this last day is a way for us to connect and be intimate with God on this eighth day. And I was hoping you could speak to us a little bit about intimacy and how we as human beings might build intimacy either with other human beings or and or with God and talk a little bit about how we can do that and maybe why it's important. So I first want to answer your question by pointing out that there are a multitude of different types of intimacy, and uh, many have written on the different types. I will tell you that anyone who feels like going to Google 
uh, you can Google the types of intimacy, and you will find that there's anywhere from four different types of intimacy to 12 different types of intimacy, and, and there's a lot of different overlaps. But the bottom line is, uh, I want to start by explaining that there are a multitude of different kinds of intimacy. There's intimacy with uh, the obvious physical components, the sexual relationship between uh, partners. There is intimacy from an intellectual standpoint. There is intimacy from a other types of relationships have different types of intimacy. So, for example, there's there's intimacy between parent and child, sharing in experiences and sharing in life lessons and learning and the opportunity to work through and process through. These are all different types of intimacy. These are Intimacy is a way of having a sharing moment that you have with something or someone special. You can have intimacy with your work colleagues. Many of us joke that we have work husbands or work wives. The truth is, is that these are people who we are close with, who we share experiences with, and we can relate to among those circumstances and in those situations. So intimacy, first and foremost, need not simply be a physical or sexual level with a partner. Um, Getting that out of the way, I think that knowing that, we've already begun to identify some of the very different specialized relationships that we have. We have our relationships with our partners, and those are very unique in many ways. That being said, most of us do not work with our partners, and therefore, we don't share necessarily that same level of work understanding. If if you have an experience that occurs at work and you come home and talk to your spouse about it, they're not necessarily going to be able to understand all the ins and outs of what's going on. Or if there's an inside joke at work, maybe you and a colleague joke about this same boss who always has this same mannerism. Your spouse isn't going to get that. They're not going to understand that joke. And you can explain it to them all you want. But we all know there's something that always gets lost in translation. There's intimacy between a parent and a child. Again, those experiences that occur. uh, That opportunity where a mistake was made and you get to either explain that you made a mistake as the parent, which should certainly not, I would encourage, should not be a rarity. Right, We always make mistakes, and one of the best things that we can do as parents is teach our children that they will still make mistakes, and it's okay. And as long as you learn from them and as long as you grow from them, a mistake is not for nothing. Um, That lesson is paramount because a lot of children, if they view their parents as perfect, despite the fact that as soon as they hit about, you know, at least 13 at the latest... Uh, will realize that their parents completely know nothing until probably 25-ish for boys. Um, Right, we know that children need to see that mistakes are a very normal thing. Suffice it to say, the child can also make a mistake, and then there's a learning opportunity from the parent to share with the child. This is a level of intimacy that really needs to be stressed because... It's an opportunity for the child not just to 
it should never be that they just feel bad that they made a mistake. Sometimes they do need to feel bad that they made a mistake because that's part of not making the mistake again. At the same time, that opportunity to see, hey, you made a mistake and I'm still here, I'm still your parent, that is a level of intimacy that is very unique and very special. Very few relationships do we have where we will keep saying okay no matter how many times a mistake is made. And I would argue that children kind of fall in that category. And then we have... And then, not surprisingly, I'm going to combine those different aspects and say we have a relationship with the Kadosh Baruch Hu, where we have that specific analogy of uh, a marriage at times and in more times we have that relationship of children and parents we are the children God is the parent and we see that level of intimacy as well I mean there are things that I'm sure many of us I can speak for myself at least have a conversation with God that I wouldn't have with anyone else I have a relationship with God that I don't have with anyone else. And I wouldn't want that relationship to bleed out or to change because we have that opportunity for that, not only intimacy in that relationship, but a greater level of vulnerability that probably, I'm going to argue, doesn't exist in any other natural relationship. I would call it's a supernatural relationship with God. Uh, and I don't mean that in a, you know, Ghostbusters kind of way. I mean that in a very real, uh, we have a, a relationship that is beyond the natural. So part of what I'm really hearing you say is that in order for there to be intimacy, there really needs to be some vulnerability whether it's the vulnerability you show your child by willing to be to admit you're wrong, whether it is the vulnerability of being open to what you really need when you're speaking with Hashem, there requires a level of vulnerability for intimacy to be able to exist. Absolutely. And, and vulnerability requires trust. Right? In order for us to be feeling safe enough to say, hey... These are all of my weaknesses. Take a look. This is where I'm insecure. This is where I'm struggling. And I need your help. Exactly. That takes trust, and that takes a, a level of, again, intimacy, the relationship. And, and one grows the other. I don't think that it's one comes and the other comes. I think it's they both grow each other. And, and we see this when, when relationships come among hard times. We see that some of those relationships strengthen and they don't just strengthen because the two picked each other up. They strengthen because they worked together at the root of the issue and they showed and shared those vulnerabilities. And sometimes those relationships really struggle and shatter in times of struggle. And that occurs very often because of a... I need to shoulder all of this by myself. I can't do anything with anyone. I have to deal with it all alone. And quite frankly, that also includes whether or not you invite Hashem into your relationship, into your 
intimate relationship. And whether you have that vulnerability with Hashem and also with yourself, sometimes it's hard for us to admit to ourselves where we're struggling. And that's important too. So again, we have a lot of different relationships with a lot of special uniquenesses about them. And yet they all include important types of intimacy and vulnerability. So Avi, I was thinking about the different Chagim that we have and where Shabbos has its role. And, you know, there's a lot of times where really, if you look at the main thing of the Chag, or the main couple of things, we see that Shabbos kind of puts a halt to it. On Rosh Hashanah, one of the main things is Shofar. And on Rosh Hashanah, if it's on Shabbos, we don't blow Shofar. And I would also say that we push Tashlech off to when it's not Shabbos. In Sukkot, we don't shake the lulav in Etrog, which is not the only thing for Sukkot, but it is a major thing for Sukkot. And we push that off on Shabbos. On Hanukkah, we have two major things that occur. We have lighting the candles, which... On Shabbos, we do before we welcome in Shabbos. And there's a big component to the giving of gelt. And, of course, we don't give gelt on Shabbos. In fact, uh, one day on Hanukkah is the day traditionally that gelt is given because it can never be on Shabbos. Uh, getting back to our calendar discussion. Um, so, what... What's interesting is I was thinking about Yom Kippur. If our main thing is fasting, we fast on Shabbos. And on Pesach, where our main things are matzah and the Seder, and those also are not held off by Shabbos. So can you... Talk to us a little bit about why are these two hugs completely unique, it seems, when Shabbos is involved. So I love this question, Akiva, because I think it's a great example of how we sometimes take our current perspective of Judaism and assume it is the norm when in reality, it is the opposite. So let me deconstruct your question in order to be able to answer it. One component that you ask about is Hanukkah. It's important for us to remember that Hanukkah is a rabbinic holiday, not a biblical holiday. And therefore, a biblical holiday like Shabbat would not be overridden by a rabbinic holiday like Hanukkah. In terms of Pesach and even Shavuot, whose main components would still take place even when Shabbat occurs, whether it's on the first or the last days or the intermediate Cholamoid days, 
we currently look at our perspective and we say, aha, why is it that Pesach is not like Sukkot or Rosh Hashanah? When in reality, if we think back historically, Pesach, Rosh Hashanah, Sukkot, Shavuot, are really all the same in the sense that because they're biblical holidays, we should be blowing the shofar on Shabbat. We should be using lulav and etrog on Shabbat. However, the rabbi said, we have a concern. We have a concern that somebody will carry, without an eruv, in order to fulfill the mitzvah of blowing the shofar. And they'll carry the shofar to shul. Now, blowing the shofar would be fine, but carrying the shofar would not. Shaking the lulav and etrog would be fine, but carrying them to shul would not. And therefore, they said, better to not do the mitzvah on that day than to worry somebody is going to transgress a biblical commandment of Shabbat. And therefore, since the time of the Beit HaMikdash's destruction, we no longer do those things. In the time of the Beit HaMikdash, the shofar was blown on Shabbat, not just on Rosh Hashanah, but every Shabbat. Instruments were played in the Beit HaMikdash on Shabbat. Well, Avi, we already did a whole episode about how things in the time of the Beit HaMikdash were different. Correct. And therefore, it was the rabbis after the, Beit after the time of the Beit HaMikdash who turned and said, there needs to be an adjustment. We need to make sure people are following the biblical command, even if that overrides, certainly if it overrides a rabbinic command, but even if it negates a positive Torah mitzvah. And therefore, they aren't different. Sukkot and Rosh Hashanah are not different in the sense that parts of it are uh, no longer happening, but rather we say, if we really were honest with ourselves, they should be happening but because we are not in the times of the Beit HaMikdash, we don't have them happen now. So here's a question for your Simchat Torah table. We are finishing a year of reading through the Torah. And we're going to restart reading the Torah again. We read the same words, and yet at the same time, we can still get something new. So we start over, but we don't start fresh. So my question is, what is something for this year that you would like to start over, start anew, but not necessarily start fresh. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.